Hello. I'd like to welcome our virtual audience today to the third Fearless Conversations event, a collaboration between the advertiser and Flinders University. It's about being brave in thinking how we can drive South Australia forward in the future and challenge ourselves to position this great state for success in the future. There will be a series of Fearless Conversations discussion panels over the next 11 weeks on topics such as high-tech innovation, tourism, infrastructure, health and more. For each, we have assembled a group of thought-provoking leaders to pose a series of questions to explore their views on the opportunities and challenges we have in relation to each topic. Today we explore medical devices and innovation and how it will influence South Australia today and in the future. Feel free to join the conversation through Twitter using the hashtag FearlessConversations or in the comments section on advertiser.com.au. So thank you for joining Fearless Conversations. I'm Brad Crouch, the health reporter for The Advertiser, and I'll be facilitating today's discussion and encouraging our guests to be brave. Before I introduce today's panellists, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting on the traditional country of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains and pay respect to elders, past and present. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationships with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. And we also extend that respect to other Aboriginal language groups and other First Nations. So, we welcome our panellists and I'll introduce them from my, starting with my left, Dr Terry Sweeney, Chief Executive of the $200 million Digital Health Corp CRC, based at the MIT Living Lab at Lot 14. Terry is an advisor to the G20, the former Global Managing Director of IBM Healthcare, and went from selling his first start-up at age 16 to selling his last to IBM for $400 million dollars and is in Adelaide to run the world's largest digital health cooperative, taking a slice of the $200 billion global digital health industry. Welcome, Terry. Thank you. Then we have Professor Trish Williams, Professor of Digital Health Systems at Flinders University and author of more than 130 medical information security and safety publications. Trish is the Director of the Flinders Digital Health Research Centre and the Cisco Flinders Digital Health Design Lab and Digital Health IoT Lab, and he's a national expert on health informatics, security and medical device standards. Welcome, Trish. Thank you. Then we have Alison Nicola, who founded the award-winning app, Care App. This is technology that links families, carers and people in care. An occupational therapist, she was leading a team of 440 people when she was inspired to develop the app by the personal experience of her own grandparents needing a little support. Alison's family wanted to be active contributors to their care, but found communication was fragmented. And on the end, we have Dr. Matthew Liptak, an orthopaedic surgeon who specialises in knee and hip arthroplasty and sports injuries. He's a member of the Australian Knee Society, a prominent speaker at national and international meetings, and, as many would know, a former professional footballer who played with the Adelaide Crows through the golden years of the 1990s and was a former club champion. As such, he was driven by team success. He has collaborated with the Flinders University Medical Device Partnering Program with the Digital Health Program, the Maxim Skate, an evidence-based, TGA-approved, safe and cost-effective e-health transportable, uh, port, sorry, portable at-home rehabilitation program. He's currently in the process of commercialising it and bringing it to a global stage. I'm sure anybody with a wonky knee will want to know more about this one. <laughs> so welcome, team, a high-caliber team. Let's, let's dive straight in with, uh, into discussion. Now, we're living in an age what seems like an exponential rise in technology, vividly shown by the rapid development of COVID vaccines, including mRNA vaccines, which no one had heard of seemingly five minutes ago. So, Terry, can I start with you? It's a huge uh, topic, but what opportunities are on the horizon that would benefit South Australia? Yeah, I I think for me, um, getting insights from all of the data that's available, I read something recently from a McKinsey report that says that... um, a typical healthcare organisation only uses about 15% of the information that's within its own organisation. Um, and I think in 2021, that's quite quite shocking. But we're now at a point with technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning that really, you know, the most advanced AI now can read 800 million pages of unstructured information per, per minute. Um, we've got the technology to really assimilate that information very, very quickly and drive insights for our, our frontline healthcare workers. So AI and machine learning is certainly something that really excites me. Okay. Uh, when we talk about AI, it seems to be 
it's a double-edged sword. It seems to be exciting, but also we're worried that machines are going to take over the world. Um, Trish, can I ask you, are these, are these developments job creators or destroyers for South Australia in the future? They're definitely job creators. There's massive opportunities when you look at digital health and digital technologies um, because it incorporates all sorts of other disciplines that haven't been in there before. So in addition to the clinical um, aspects, we need people who have computer science, information science, health informaticians. So really across the board, we need a whole range of different um, people and skills to be able to deliver on those. And these are high-skilled jobs, aren't they? They are. They are very high-skilled jobs. And having some experience in healthcare particularly um, is one of those nexus that is quite difficult to get. So, you know, we have clinicians who want to, you know, do more technical things, you know, like Matt. And then we have a whole, um, you know, another generation of people who want to be able to do computer science and information science type of activities and have those skills and they need to apply them in a context, and healthcare is a fantastic um, opportunity for those. And this, this would be an area where we've, we've gone through the pandemic where so many people were working from home and suddenly they're realising, well, I can work from home from here on in, or I can work in my country property, or I can work out in the bush. Can we set up a community in South Australia that is providing digital healthcare and resources and opportunities worldwide? Absolutely. I think we can because we have already moved into that era of doing things in a very virtual environment. And so being able to just to translate that and have communities of practice, um, you know, in healthcare, we already have a lot of those. So whether it is in the clinical field, whether it's in um, things like, you know, running from the CRC or the uh, Digital Health Agency, all of those sort of um, organisations really help to bring those people together. And I think there's an opportunity there for South Australia to be able to do that. Okay. Alison, you've filled a niche that uh, didn't exist a couple of decades ago or not that long ago at all with your care app, which links people in care with their carers, their clinicians, I believe, but most importantly, their family. So everybody's in touch. And again, this is technology that um, my mother's in care herself, but yeah. she's within walking distance of me. But I know other people that their loved ones are interstate and in this era of lockdown, that's a nightmare for some people. Just just explain how this sort of technology is helping the man in the street, the families in the street. Yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful piece of technology. I mean, when we think about um, healthcare, one of the things that I think um, we need to consider is well-being, you know, living with purpose, living with meaning, um, being connected, being engaged. You know, it's not just about meeting you know, basic medical needs. And uh, one of, you know, the important parts of that is social connectedness. And uh, we know, you know, through the literature, the stronger a person's network of support, the better the health outcomes are. And, uh, you know, in this day and age, we can't all be geographically living close to one another. Um, my family, you know, is dispersed, not just interstate, but, but overseas. And uh, using the power of technology, we can actually bring people closer together to provide that connectedness, to provide meaning, purpose, engagement and uh, support people to continue to live well. I guess one, one hiccup with this, as I say, my mother's in care. She's got a mobile phone, but not the internet. My mother-in-law is 90. She lives at home, independent, doesn't have a mobile phone at all. Yeah. They're the ones who may be the missing link in the technologies. It, how, how do you address that sort of thing, the problem with people who are old and just don't want to be involved in that sort of tech? Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. Something that we pride ourselves on at CareUp is being ahead of the curve, but not so far ahead of the curve that it's fanciful. And uh, we've got people using CareUp that are 85 years of age plus. And the reason that we've been able to do that is because we've worked alongside, hand in hand with our users and orientated them to, you know, probably one of the most simple user interfaces you will, you know, um, you will see. There's a big orange button. Orientate the person to the big orange button and they're away. And so, uh, you know, I guess uh, what we need to do is, you know, be ahead of the curve, recognise that, uh, um, you know, people, their technology literacy is going to be, be increasing. We know that the, the fastest adopters of social media and the like are actually, you know, plus 55. Um, so I don't think we should underrate uh, people's skills in this space. It's about holding, them ha holding their hand and, and you know, bringing, bringing them along for the ride and demonstrating the value and what's in it for them, you okay. know, make it de-threatening it. It's not, it's not okay. so scary. 
Can I make an added comment? Yeah, yeah, that? sure. And, and I think one of your first question um, was, you know, a really good question about what's on the horizon. And, you know, we have welcome to the, you know, age of new technology. And what we have all of the ability now to be able to have devices that in the future will become, we won't see them. You won't, you know, you'll have, we have phones, we have cameras, we have voice recognition, facial recognition. And there will be a point when all of those devices um, become transparent to us and they will do things for us in the way that we want them to do it. The monotonous tasks um, and, you know, and being able to have, instead of having to press a button to talk to somebody, that you will be able to do that by, you know, being those things being embedded in your environment. Um, but there's a bit of a jump for us to get to that because we actually have a lot of that technology now yep. and people like the CRC are looking at, well, how do you take all that data and make it do those things? But um, as human beings, we often get in our own way and I think there it'll be a bit of a slow adoption of that because change is very difficult for us and, you know, taking on a whole lot of technology all at once is also quite confronting for people. Sure, yeah. um, but when we do, it will have, it'll be a game changing sort of thing to do because that will just be there and it will do it for us. It's not going to take over our lives, but it will be able to have opportunities that we don't have now. Okay. That sounds like some of the technology that we now take so much for granted, like Absolutely. TV sets. You know, yep. Go back 500 years and people would be going, oh, what's that? <laughs> so I, I can see the opportunities yeah. there. Matthew, again, sticking with this idea of what it means for people in the street, your, your Maxim Skate project, what sure. my understanding is this is, is it physiotherapy at home through technology? So it's a form of home physiotherapy that uh, um, provides a self-responsible, tangible benefit for the patient to take home. And we are using digital technology uh, and acknowledging digital technology as a form of uh, allowing patients to do this. Um, just going back to, you know, the health solutions that we're all trying to provide, we're trying to provide a connective health experience. And that connective health experience is really important for all of us to be aware that each of us can play a part in building that experience and tailoring those experiences for each of the stakeholders. And in particular, the end user or in health, the patients. Yep. And that's what we're all trying uh, to achieve is some really good patient outcomes using digital technology at a cost-effective and safe environment, um, which is what the Maxim Skate does. It's a, it's a solution for a, a problem that I foresee uh, in rehabilitation and in the, particularly relevant in the current environment where going to rehabilitation or accessing physiotherapy or hydrotherapy or the normal uh, standard care has become very uh, difficult. And in fact, some patients do not want to access that for fear of COVID. Yeah. Um, so we can use technology to our advantage. Um, but going back to Trish, we need to educate all the stakeholders. And that education is really paramount in building these systems. These systems. It sounds like the pandemic may have accelerated that move, we've seen the quick growth of telehealth. As you say, people don't necessarily want to go to their health providers because yeah. you know, they're either in lockdown or they're just worried about going out in the community. Now, as I understand it, this, this program, if, if I can dumb it down to my level a bit, it's I do my knee, have the operation, I'm undergoing physiotherapy, but I can use this system in my home um, or take it on holidays? Yeah, it's been coined as I can go on my rehab holiday, and yep. basically they can. They can get, pro they can see their progress on the screen with their phone, with their app, um, and with their smartwatch. Um, and it allows the patient to be responsible. They get gamified, which is the term that we've all started to know and breed in, in digital technology. They gamify their rehabilitation. They want to get better. They can see how they're going over a period of time. Similarly, their medical supervisory team can look down upon them. And with that coordinated approach, allow the patient to get where they want to go. And it's that clinical outcome of having a good uh, rehabilitation program following good surgery. And I've always addressed to my patients that outcomes are driven by 50% of surgical intervention and 50% of the rehabilitation. And if you get the rehabilitation right, you are well in advance. So using uh, the Maxim Skate as one of the alternatives, and I'm not yep. going to brand it as the sole alternative, but one of the alternatives does provide a global uh, solution to a problem. And, and the 
the doctor or the physio or whatever is part of the system so that they can see, well, you're not using it right or you're going off track here. And Absolutely. Everything. So there is some red flags that come back to either the, the physiotherapist or the medical supervisor and team yep. that will then contact the patient and say, hey, you haven't done your exercise for two or three days. How are you going? Um, or you're doing well. Um, and or on the regional patients, they can see via telehealth as well, ring in and say, hey, let's get going. You're not quite there. Um, Matthew, I'll, I'll, I've got to ask you this one because um, I was a big fan of the Bionic Man when I was a kid. <laughs> We're, we've got an Adelaide company that's working on a Bionic Eye, which is one of the Holy Grails, make people see again. Sure. How, how far are we from a Bionic solution or a device or technology that will have us that other Holy Grail where we can move wheelchairs away, not just the knee but the, the, I think the spinal injury? I think we're a long way away from that at this point of time. Um, However, there's certainly some companies that are developing um, anatomical models that will help surgeons advance in the future. Yep. Um, there's some, uh, but to get the bionic for you or I, if we lose a limb, I think we're so that that's certainly a long way off. Still, still mm. a bit of sci-fi. No, yeah. Well, we, 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 we work towards these things. I think Sarah? I just add to that, and, and Matt's absolutely right. And I don't know too much about eyes and sight, but we've done some work quite recently with capturing brain waves. Um, to move an artificial limb, for example. So we now have the ability to clench a fist, open a fist, turn our artificial limb by using brain waves in the same way that we can, uh, we, uh, we, we hooked up a, a radio controlled little robot from, from Star Wars, which we can control in terms of moving forwards, backwards, left and right using, using brain waves and all the capturing of brain waves. So I think that you're right. There's a long way to go. Yep. But at a research stage at the moment, there's, there's a lot of really exciting developments happening in that field of using our mind to control a physical device. Is this, is this also where the idea of big data comes in, where you've got these supercomputers and lots of data? So in, instead of some guy just sitting around sort of coming up with an idea and working down on a pad, yeah. you, you're turbocharging the research through that digital technology? It is, Brad. I think um, I, I read a really interesting stat the other day that of all the data that exists in the world today, not just in healthcare, mm. but all of the information that exists in the world today, 90% of it was only created in the last two years. Mm. So we've got this exponential growth in information. Healthcare data doubles every 73 days. Um, so it's this new technology that we can use to, to, to harness it and, and drive better, um, better decision-making. Um, and, and I think when we talk about decision-making using the information and the technology to derive insights from that information, it's very much a partnership between the, the human and the machine. Mm. Um, I, I like to often refer to artificial intelligence as augmented intelligence to get over the point that, you know, we're, it's, it's a useful tool, but it's a tool that will provide insights from all of that information to a human to ultimately make a decision. And I think it's that partnership between the two um, is, is, is an important distinction, especially when it comes to things like the ethics of, of AI and, and yep. new yeah. technologies. Okay. Just, just uh, obviously some terrific opportunities for people who have diseases and accidents, so forth, on the horizon. But, but also um, technology as far as improving patient safety. Um, I understand patient safety incidents cost over $4 billion in 2017-18, and you're, you're trialling a predictive harm algorithm in some of our major hospitals to try and um, reduce adverse effects. This, this seems another area where technology can prevent problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah Just expand on that a little bit. It is very much that kind of uh, prediction and prevention. So we, we're now able to develop models and algorithms that not only detect an adverse event when it happens, would actually be able to predict it in advance of time so a clinician and a healthcare professional can intervene early. And we think some of the um, flu-on effects of that might help with things like ramping and mm. other issues in, in, uh, in, in people presenting to the ED and, and capacity problems in our hospitals, where if we can predict an adverse event in advance, we can intervene at the place where that person lives, um, often you'll get better clinical outcomes. It's more convenient and more comfortable for the patient, um, but often it will it will reduce or eliminate the need for that person to present to a GP or a or or, or an emergency department. So th- this trial, I understand, it's in hospitals and it's things like patient medications, falls, and so forth. Is is the trial with an aim to also be in people's homes or aged care facilities? It, it, it is. Ultimately, it's, uh, we're looking at it in an ED, so we're doing some work with the Royal Adelaide Hospital and Flinders Medical Centre and, and, and others. 
And it's, it's actually around how we schedule our workforce to respond to a patient in need and the risk that that can, that can, uh, that can bring up. But ultimately also the ability to, you know, if we're prescribing a, a drug in a hospital uh, to an individual patient, let's use the technology to look at that patient's history, the drugs that they're on, the conditions that they have to try and reduce some of those um, in, you know, bad interactions, uh, drug interactions and adverse events that you, you mentioned at the top of the question, Brad. Okay. Um, Alison, does, does your care app go down that path as well, sort of keep an eye on meds and that sort of thing? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting conversation to have. So care app, you know, I guess healthcare has always been retrospective, like looking at, you know, people's, um, you know, past behaviour, past health conditions. And I think we're, you know, at a point now where we can look at healthcare in real time, which is great. And we've got you know, Fitbits and other sensor-based technologies that's looking at healthcare in real time, and that's really, really powerful. I guess the next step is around that predictive yeah. technology. And I guess what I'm hearing, you know, from your conversation, Terry, around um, medication management and ramping, etc. I think that's, I think that's really fascinating in terms of supporting, um, you know, the healthcare system. What I really love about, you know, predictive technologies is. Um, getting in early so that people can stay at home, so that people can stay, you know, enjoying the things that they love. Um, ultimately, what I, what I love about this digital health conversation is it's so person-centered. It is so about, you know, continuing to support people who are aging, people with illness, injury, disability to, you know, remain at home, remain in a place that they would love to live. So, you know, I guess CareUp is right at that cusp of we've brought, um, a, you know, healthcare into real time. And now we're working with our partners to um, look at what does that look like with, you know, predictive based technology? What does that look like with integration with sensors and um, ultimately with, with some AI? And I, th- I think, you know, moving on from, from your point, in fact, what you've just said too, is that we can do a lot of those things now. So, um, you know, mentioning about the ramping in the hospitals, a lot of ED is clogged up with people who have uh, chronic conditions. And we have the ability now to do a lot more monitoring, whether it's, you know, from your Fitbit or, you know, medical mm-hmm. devices um, that you can have at home that actually help and prevent some of those admissions. And I think that's what we need to engage in more and take on more of that adoption of technology so that people can be doing that at home and you will then have less people coming in to, you know, to hospital. There's always the things like we have a lot more technology that is portable. So, you know, people themselves become the point of care. So you can do blood pressure monitoring. Um, You know, we have mobile ultrasounds now and we have, you know, maybe we'll have mobile scanners um, those sorts of things and and the more that you can bring that into where the patient is um, and therefore for providing care when and where it's needed rather than having them come into the hub of where we provide care then that will change that balance of where people actually get their health care from and hopefully alleviate the problems that we have in ED and, and I think Alison and Trish hit the nail on the head where the the, the, the real time or mm. near real time um, feedback from the technology to, 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 to intervene or take an action. Um, we, 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 at the CRC, we're talking about, um, you know, the term wearables, and actually we, we like the term thinkables. You know, right, right now my, 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 my Fitbit is great, right, and it's, um, it can capture a lot of information. Um, if it wants to do any kind of heavy processing on that information, it goes to my, the app on my phone. Yeah. If it needs to do any more than that, it goes up to the cloud. It does some of that, that number crunching. And Brad, you mentioned supercomputers and with quantum compu- computing, you know, they, they require a power plant's worth of electricity yep. um, to, to do that very, very quick and intense uh, calculation type work. But with, with thinkables and the, there's a the real push now to look at, um, microprocessors and chips that sit on the device that um, that are based on the neural networks of the brain, and we're calling it brain-inspired computing. So the next generation of microchips being designed on the neural networks in the brain, and, and you know, the brain requires about 20 watts of electricity, which is not a lot, to do all of the amazing <laughs> things that we can do. If we can harness that and put it onto a chip and have the chips in these devices, then not only are we going to get real-time feedback but we're going to get some of that predictive feedback. Mm. So if you have epilepsy and there's a danger of you having mm. a seizure 
or you're an elderly person and there's a risk of you having a fall, being able to be told in advance that this may happen so you can get to a safe place, yep. I think is, is, is going to mm. be a, a fantastic breakthrough. So we, we really are talking about um, saving lives. Mm-hmm. Like, can, you, can you quantify that in any way? We, I mean, we talked about the $4.1 billion figure some years ago, patient incidents. Is there, is there a sort of ballpark figure on what we could aim for, well, lives and money? In terms of money, it's an interesting one. I think, you know, um, the global cost of chronic disease is, is about $47 trillion. It's the most, you know, when we say chronic disease, we're talking about diabetes, type 1 and type 2, hypertension, uh, cardiometabolic diseases like, like heart disease, um, and, and even cancer care, $47 trillion. So the ability to use technology to take some of that cost out of the system, I think, would really help. And we also think about the waste in, in, in the healthcare system as well. Globally, 30 cents in the dollar that we spend on delivering healthcare services is wasted because of duplication, error, fraud and abuse, and, 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 and other reasons. So we also have the ability to drive that cost down as well. I always get a little nervous when, it, when I talk about technology saving lives because <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I'm bold enough. Um, or fearless enough fearless, to, 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 to say we're going to save lives, but ultimately it will and we are. Yeah. Um, absolutely. All right. And the other thing linked to this is quality of life. Matthew, mm-hmm. getting getting back to your thing, um, we've we've gone an era of um, elderly people being benefiting particularly from hip replacements, but the knee is the big one for so many people getting to a certain age. Are we looking at a, a major breakthrough in quality of life with the improvements, such as the technology to do your rehab? Sure. In a, in a, so, yeah, a absolutely. There's a quality of life is improving year in, year out. And we've shown with that, with, um, you know, um, the, um, uh, the, the uh, age bracket uh, enlarging um, as we go along. But... Um, Technology is amazing. Digital technology is expanding at such a rapid rate, and Terry's right. There's just so many platforms for this um, that we have to make sure, once again, I'm just going to bring it up, that this, each stakeholder is aware of what's going on. The education process is there. Um, because as we build and spend a lot of money on each of these digital platforms, we might find that it actually sounds great, looks great, but doesn't work on for, for the uh, down-to-earth mum or dad or grandma or grandparent at home. Yep. And so we have to have their en- engagement as well. Um, getting back to knees itself, yes, we're developing th- uh, better quality uh, surgical outcomes all the time. Um, but once again, um, is what we're developing safe, effective, as good as what we're doing before, and cost-effective? And right now the health system's being inundated by many, many other uh, avenues of uh, cost, costs, and the cost effectiveness of each of these avenues needs to be put into place. And I, I think that's where our current HTA, the Health Technology Assessment Group, really needs to come into play and just makes, is aware of all these technologies uh, and really rig, uh, rigorously looks at them correctly. Um, because we, if, as we're talking about this, we're talking about Terry's Fitbit. Currently, all of us are, are currently, or a lot of us, are wearing wellness devices. But mm. TGA needs to get, you know, approval for these for those to be looked at as a medical device or medical outcome. And currently, they're not. So we do need to work together with technology to expand on what we are hoping for is better clinical outcomes mm. and being able to actually profess that they are. Um, all right, you've, you've raised something which um, I was moving on to in the, in the spirit of being fearless. Um, <laughs> technology can be a real dud sometimes. We had SA Health's electronic patient record system, EPAS. It blew out by millions and millions of dollars. Years late, it was dumped halfway through introducing it to the Royal Adelaide. Um, it's been partly salvaged, but it was a case of technology being a bit of a dud. And most importantly, clinicians didn't like it. So, um, may I speak to that? Yeah, 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 because I'm one of the clinicians (laughs) (laughs) that didn't like it. Yep. So, one of the clinicians that was introduced when it first came out, and the Repad Hospital was one of the first hospitals that it was introduced to. Um, Going back to the stakeholders being involved, clinicians weren't involved in the build. And as the clinicians are the primary users of that system, it was very clunky and it actually changed our behaviour to the extent that patient care may have been at detriment 
particularly in those first early years. Yep. Um, if I just go back to time spent per patient, um, my time spent per patient was two to three times more using uh, EPAS than using just previous uh, technology. And think about that in healthcare costs. Think about that in patient time. Think about that with clinicians not quite uh, understanding how to put all their notes together and yep. potential loss of notes. Yep. That was occurring more and more commonly than what they would have hoped for. Yeah. And as they found this, this clinician um, barrier, they did find a way to make it a little bit more easy, but it's still quite a clunky system, which I still currently use at Nalunga uh, Hospital and uh, often I, I find myself swearing at the screen. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. <laughs> Well, well, Trish, can I, Trish, can I throw that to you? Um, how, how, do, how do we find the balance in technology beyond EPAS, which uh, yeah. I think Matthew's summed it up pretty nicely, of making sure clinicians are in front of patients rather than in front of computer screens for most of their day? Um, EPAS is a good example in a way because, you know, there is still a level of major IT projects that about 50% of them don't go very well or fail. Still, and there's a whole uh, raft of reasons why that occurs. Um, Terry, um, sorry, Matt, um, you know, mentioned that, that the clinician's involvement. The majority of the problems start at that very early stage where things are not um, sort of contextualised. You don't have the right people in the room at the very beginning. Yep. Um, and, you know, it's, we all know about project management and, and those sorts of things, but pulling the right people together and then saying, well, how are we going to use this in healthcare? Not, I have a product and it's absolutely fabulous and you need to use it. Uh, you know, I first started writing medical record systems in 1986, a long time ago, uh, but the, you know, we had to look at how do you practice medicine and then what can we help you to do around that? Not, I have a great solution and now I'm going to give it to you and you have to change what you do. Because whilst we're okay at changing what we do, if you want to have access to your money through your bank account, you have to do it the way the bank tells you to do it or you don't have access to it. You cannot do that in healthcare. That is not the way healthcare functions. We have to do things so that it fits in with what the clinical workflow and processes already are. And that is where I think, you know, the majority of projects fail in healthcare, especially very large ones, because we're not addressing that up front. Yep. And I think, Brad, Trish, Trish is right that, you know, we embedding the technology in the, in the workflow that the doctors and the other healthcare professionals are doing on a daily basis is critical. There's, there's the real buzz phrase around now in digital health, you know, um, putting the patient at the centre of everything that we do, and we're, we're getting good at that. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about putting the clinician at the centre of everything we do. Yeah. So, we, you know, we, we develop solutions in our ivory towers, so then when it hits the streets into a hospital or a primary care f- facility or an aged care facility, we're surprised why the professionals aren't, aren't, aren't adopting it. The other general comment I would make about EMRs, and, and I, you know, all script is no different to Cerner, is no different to Epic, and, and we have a patchwork of those around Australia. We can talk about why we have one in each state versus actually just having one for a population <laughs> of 25 million. I did, I did a pilot around EMR health data in China. And the pilot involved 47 million patients. So, you know, we've got a country of 25 million. This is one of the problems I feel as, a, as an outsider coming back into Australia is this state versus federal policy and where, you know, we can talk about vaccination management rollout <laughs> systems where, you know, we have Microsoft in Queensland and, and, um, and, and Victoria and we have Salesforce and WA and every state's paying seven, eight, nine, ten million dollars. Um, why don't we just have one for the entire country and then we can manage it a little bit better? But I think one of the, one of the misconceptions about EMRs is it's a system of record. And I think when people get an EMR, they think it's a health data platform and all of the insights and capability that comes with that, um, you don't really get that from an EMR. It's a good building mm. block, right. but it's only a building block. So I think it's, it's been, it's, you know, they've been sold or they've been hyped as being something that they're probably not. So they end up being a bit underwhelming because it is just a system of record. But the, the smart thing is, well, now we've got that data into an EMR. What are we going to do with it? And I think that's where the value comes, mm. not necessarily in the building block of an EMR. And I agree, EMR implementations shouldn't cost that. Amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> Alison, with 
with your app, did you involve clinicians or aged care carers, that sort of thing? Yeah, ab- <coughs> excuse me, absolutely. So um, CARAP is built for the people and the people who support the people. Every decision that we make, um, that is front and centre of our mind. And I think, Terry, um, like that, that conversation around um, records management and um, designing and, and clinician use, it's a really interesting one because the end user of digital health technology are not generally the purchasers of the technology, right? So when we're designing technology, you know, you can kind of design thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to design, you know, for this provider and they will love these features because they're going to purchase, you know, our our piece of technology. And maybe that can cloud our judgment around our design decisions because we want to create something that's going to be purchased, you know, by by the organisation, by the healthcare system, etc. When in fact, what we need to do is keep the patient at the centre, keep the client at the centre, and the people who support those people at the centre of all of our decisions. So the very first thing I did with with CareApp was I invested three dollars fifty um, in CareApp, and I took a care worker out for a coffee at Chibo at Norwood, and that's how CareApp started. Was with a three dollar three fifty three dollars fifty. Um, cappuccino, probably $7 because I bought two um, at Chibo at Norwood with a few sketches on a piece of paper with a 70-year-old care worker. And like, what do you think? Um, and that's how it started. And every single day I still speak with our users, um, whether that be family members, whether that be disability support workers, whether that be lifestyle coordinators or what we call joy makers, the joy makers within um, aged care. Um, and then, of, of course, the decision makers who, you know, ultimately, you know, sign the contract mm-hmm. to, to use CareApp within their organisation. But the fact that, you know, we have those conversations every single day and when a suggestion is made, we actually ring the user back up and say, hey, thanks, your suggestion has just gone live. And uh, so we continue those conversations. I describe CareApp as perfectly imperfect. And that's because we continue to iterate with our users um, and learn along the way. Okay. Mm. Um, Trish, we're talking about the masses of data that's out there and um, there's now masses of private health information floating around somewhere out there. I'm not entirely sure. Um, Vaccine passports are a hot-button topic at the moment, Um, but but people are worried about their privacy Mm -hmm. and their medical records, having to show their medical records or medical records possibly being in the hands of the local pub. Yeah. to get in, um, and, and that speaks to a wider issue. How do you balance innovation and cyber security in this era of digital technology? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think there's, there's several different facets to that. Um, one is we, we obviously have legislation around, in, to your first point, about what you can use data for, um, who can use it, who can change it. Um, and so there's a level of protection there in healthcare, particularly all of those uh, regulations apply to what you can do with people's health information. Um, but there is a sort of a caveat to that, because as a, a person, when I'm well, I don't necessarily want people to have access to my data. You know, I don't necessarily want it splashed on the front of the advertiser. But when I go into emergency, I don't care who looks at my data. I want anybody who can fix me to look at it. So, um, you know, the privacy types of aspects are actually quite contextual, yep. depending on what's going on. But we do have to have an overarching um, framework around how do we protect people's data because, um, you know, confidentiality of data leads to privacy for the individual. And um so when we look at that and we look at innovation and cybersecurity, then we need to make sure that those sort of considerations are looked at at the very beginning of developing a product and what is, you know, what is the consumer going to have to give that product and what data they're going to have to give and how is that going to be protected and what's going to happen with that. Um, and I think because, you know, apps are a really good example. You know, there are, there are over 100,000 health just health apps, let alone medical ones. So, um, you know, if you want to use an app, it gives you a screen at the front that says you need to agree to all this. 99.999% of people never read it. They go, yes, I want to use the app. Okay. All right. And which is, you know, all of us do that. Um, but what we don't understand is what that will happen, what will happen with our data when it comes to that. So there is, um, there's a new international standard that, uh, that I've been contributing to that looks at doing a, a bit like a food label for apps 
to say, is it reliable? Does it have quality um, um, of that particular health app? Because health apps are not regulated by the um, Therapeutic Goods Administration as medical devices are. And so as a consumer, you actually have no idea whether you know, when the app says it's going to be able to help you monitor this, is it actually going to be able to do it? Um, and, and I think this comes back to your conversation that there's a, you know, what happens between uh, apps and, you know, other devices that you want to use to improve health, but they're not making a clinical decision. So they don't come under the regulations. And, and I think navigating that for, uh, for everybody is actually quite difficult to do. Right. I, I couldn't agree more with Trish and, I always get a bit of a wry smile when I think about privacy and security and sovereignty when it comes to our health information. Mm. The amount of stuff that we put on social media, you know, half a billion tweets around the world per day, over a billion interactions with Facebook per day, and we're putting pictures of our kids and, and personal in our, our houses and, and things online. We get pretty scared when it comes to health information, but you know, we look at the rollout of my health record. I wasn't living in Australia at the time, but looking, looking from the outside in, um, you know, I think the concept you can't argue with, right? If I'm in front of my oncologist and I've just been diagnosed with stage three prostate cancer, do I want that doctor to have all of the information available at their fingertips to make the best possible treatment decisions for me for my rate of survival? Of course, you can't argue with that. So the ability for that person to have access to all of that information and the care team to have access to that information, no one would argue about it. We shouldn't be having the conversations about can this person see it, can that person mm -hmm. see it. If you give the power to the individual, mm -hmm. it's my information. I can determine when I tick the box for you to be able to access it and under what yeah. conditions and what context you can access it. It's empowering the patient as a consumer. You know, I bought these jeans on three weeks ago on Amazon. And we, when we think about the patient as a consumer, it's a beautiful experience shopping on Amazon. I go in, it makes me all of the... All, I know it's using my information to upsell and cross-sell to me. Yep. And I kind of like that. I'm, personally, my choice is, is that. And I want the ability to do that with the health system and how I interact with the health system because we're not... Um, the consumer is not king or queen in healthcare, and it's yeah. probably the last industry where I go to my GP. I can't even book an appointment online at my GP. So I know my appointment is at 11 o'clock. I'm still going to be sitting there at 11.45 because I've got no way of tracking, live tracking where that GP is at so I can get some of that time, some of that time back. Um, so, so the, and, and we accept that kind of yeah. second-rate service. You yeah. know? Um, so I'm, I'm happy to tick the box to say use the information as long as I control. That. Yeah. So in other words, that connected retail experience, you're loving. You're loving because you're not giving yeah. that information, that personal information. But you're wanting that connected health experience that we're all suggesting that we're trying to build or find a model that suits all of the stakeholders. And I think that's the really difficult part is navigating through the regulations, as yeah. Trish said, the wishes and wants for the for us as developers and for the uh, uh, providers or the patients we're providing for. And that's a really difficult time as we're exponentially finding that um, there is new and new innovative uh, technologies that enable us to be able to provide, but can we provide it in a safe, cost-effective and effective way? And I think that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. I think we're at this like generational change. Like, Yes, we're not the kings and queens of our healthcare um, experience at the moment, but I actually disagree. I think we want it. I think mm. the appetite is mm. absolutely there. And I certainly think about my parents um, who are in their 70s and uh, still in, you know, very good shape, but they're absolutely, you know, putting all the steps in place to make sure that they're, you know, chief in charge of their um, ageing experience yeah. and their healthcare experience. Um, but uh, we still have that generation before them that are accepting of that. I don't think we are though, um, but it's how do we go about, you know, giving people, you know, choice and control and, and, and we think, don't know how to do it yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think I'm excited about the Australian health system moving from a volume based to, to value based, mm -hmm. you know, in the US 50% yeah. of healthcare is value based. And that's why there is more consumerism in healthcare in the US, whether so you question the cost, 17% of GDP versus 9% in Australia for delivering healthcare services. Um, but, but that value-based care, you know, who'd have thought, how do we measure 
how effective the delivery of that yeah. health service is or the experience, ask the patient. Yeah. So we're now starting yeah. to see things like, we call them prompts and prems, patient-reported outcomes, patient-reported experience, yep. where we're asking the patient, how was your experience with that hospital visit or GP visit? Um, do you feel like you had a, a satisfactory outcome? And if not, you know, the financial model that sits behind that, where we see in the U.S., for example, where if someone's readmitted to a hospital for the same condition that they went into initially, that healthcare provider is financially penalized and they don't get the, re the reimbursement. So I think there are ways we can um, incentivize the system to be much more focused on value-based care. And I think we're starting mm. that journey in Australia. But right now, it's still activity-based. I deliver a service. I get reimbursed for that, regardless of how good, bad, bad or indifferent that service is. And I think that, you know, to that point, too, we still have quite a paternalistic view on data in healthcare that, you know, we, my children are not suddenly going to turn into me when they're 40. Probably they're probably very happy about that. Um, but, you know, we have legislation that stops us from. You know, you can't access the healthcare data. You can't put it somewhere else. You can't do this. You can't do this with it. But, um, you know, as you've just mentioned, that other younger generation is quite happy to share all sorts of information. They actually don't really have um, that same view of it that we do. Not that they don't value it, but they don't consider it in the same way that we do. And we are using laws for I'm going to say my generation, probably. Um, but in fact, you know, those younger generations don't look at it in the same way. And, and that is very slow to change. That, that might change if a hacker gets hold of your information, though. Yeah, Brad, I, I, the, way I, the way I answer that, that comment is, um, you know, I use, I use Westpac and CBA banking apps on a daily basis. Could a hacker hack into my bank account and steal my money? Absolutely. Do I worry about it? I, I don't. So, yes, we've, we've yeah. got to have the right security in place. Um, absolutely no question. But I don't think it should be a, a consideration for us on a, on, a, on a daily basis. All right. Um, we've got a question coming from Dr. Gareth Ferber. Therapeutic relationships, the quality of relationship between the client and treating practitioner is important, particularly in mental health care. Mm -hmm. How might we make digital health tools that maximise this therapeutic factor? Difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think that's... We're all looking difficult. at you. Yeah. <laughs> well done, Matt, for taking that question. That's right. Um, you know, from a clinician's point of view, it's always difficult to have a, a, a relationship with your patient that is there, you're, you're dealing with the patient's problem there and then. To have that ongoing relationship, and particularly with mental health, would be important, but to get and build those particular programs, I'm sure people are doing this, but once again, it's got to be sure that all stakeholders... No, can see the benefits, can use the benefits, and at the right time. So going back to that uh, um, predictive uh, ability, perhaps in that field, predictive ability would be far more important than the predictive ability of uh, an arthritic knee. Um, mental health is obviously uh, at the level of you know, survivorship yep. in some instances. That, that human relationship is still... Oh, it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it is an interesting one. And, and um, I made a comment on Twitter a few months ago and, and RACGP just don't talk to me anymore um, <laughs> because, you know, they were promoting. And, and I agree. I think, you know, that, that long term relationship between clinician and patient is very important, particularly in an area like mental health. So I'm not suggesting mm. otherwise. But we also the, the flip side of that is 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 convenience. So for for me, who I don't really use the healthcare system that often, and when I do, it's much more about convenience. In that, and if, if it's something maybe less trivial than than a mental health consideration, I don't care whether I see my GP or someone else. For me, it's about convenience. And again, when we look at the US, you've got organisations like Walmart, you know, the, the the giant retailer that have set up Walmart Health and they have primary care services in the corner of their hypermarkets where I can go and see a GP, an audiologist, I can get pathology results. And it's more about convenience. And I think there's there's been a pushback in Australia for pharmacies and other retail health outlets increasing the services that they provide because as the RACGP would say with the greatest respect, 
It's all about having that relationship with your GP. Now, they would say that because they represent GPs. And there's a financial consideration there. They don't want to lose business. But for me, I want to be able to walk into chemist warehouse or wherever and see a GP in the corner of of, of that um, pharmacy like I can with CVS with their minute clinic in in, in the US. So I think from a horses for courses, definitely good to have that long-term relationship. But from a convenience point of view, I want to have a little bit more choice Right. in healthcare yep. and not just be kind of tied in as it were to the you, person that I've known for 15 20 years. Do you think that's a generational thing? So I like you I actually, you know, value that relationship with my GP and maybe because I'm getting older and have more different things, you know, dodgy knees etc yeah. wrong. Um but you know, my children's view of that is quite different. If they feel unwell, they don't care who they see. They just want someone to you know, prescribe them something or whatever and have it fixed. They do not have um, any appetite for that relationship in the same way that I do. And so whether that will change over time um, is an interesting factor. That's because they're having relationships online. (laughs) Absolutely. They're having far more relationships online than than we ever have had in our lives. And that's just changing the whole gender difference, or not gender, but the generation difference. Yeah. In, in my world, in the aged care world, I've got um, support workers who are going into to people's homes. They've not had a relationship with um, their client previously, and they've got to get up to speed and build rapport really, really quickly in order to have that, um, I guess, deliver, you know, the most beautiful care experience possible. And, uh, you know, I guess having access to, um, uh, you know, what's happening with someone, having that deeper understanding you can go from um, having a transactional relationship with someone yeah. that you don't know to one that is more connected, one is that's more engaged and one that you can build rapport um, with. So um, in answer to um, the doctor's this question, in regards to building those therapeutic relationships and ongoing relationships, um, you know, ensuring that you've got, you know, broad access to people's information, not just, mm. you know, what's happening midwise or what's happening with their range of motion, but, you know, going beyond that, what's mm. their what's their interests, what's their lifestyle, yeah. um, those kind of things. And just going back to the clinicians, the clinici- clinicians do want to be involved with their patients yeah. and stay connected. And it might be, you know, the telehealth or connection through that, that the accessibility that you're after, Terry, can be done with the person you would like to see yeah. and the offering out of out of the normal hours or whatever. So it is a, a rapport that can be built up. And this, these digital technology or platforms are certainly allowing that to become to the front. Um, as I said, you know, um, as a clinician stakeholder, it would be fantastic to have that available yeah. and the availability to allow my patients to come in and see, hey, it is going to be a 15-minute wait or guess what? He can yeah. be online and COVID's allowed the telehealth conferencing to be online. Um, and I see that uh, in US, actually, they've just spent another 19 million building up their platforms on telehealth as well, just in the last week or so. So we need to expand that as we're expanding digital health. I think that cho- Matt makes an important point about about the choice. So that again, yeah. the, the patient is a consumer. I'd like to choose how, when, and 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 and, and why I get and and, and where I get that uh, I get that interaction or treatment with the. Uh, with the clinician and it's back to the to the data i think brad that if i i mean we can't travel anywhere at the moment we can go to perth. if i went to perth next week <laughs> and i don't know perth hotels very well i can go on a trip advisor or one of a thousand websites yep. and make an informed choice on the hotel that i choose to stay in yep. for two nights in perth yep. where's the information similar in healthcare you know i've just recently moved back to adelaide um I might choose a GP out of convenience because their their clinics around the corner, um, but I might have a certain condition or I might like to um, interact with my GP in a certain way. I need that information to make an informed choice on which physician, which GP, which hospital I choose to have an operation in, and we don't quite have that informed choice in health yet and I think that's because it's back to the data and we're not presented the data in a way that allows us to make that choice so I think Mm. it feels often like a healthcare service is imposed upon us rather than actually I'm making the choice in the same way that NDIS runs right so the idea behind that is let's empower the individual to give them a care package for them to in 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 an informed way to make a choice about which service they procure for their disability. We need to see that more broadly in the healthcare system. And I think that's where virtual care is taking off, you know, 
um, and, and telehealth being part of that, that it isn't just the consultation. It's about having the data, whether it's from home monitoring type stuff or from your Fitbit or from your Fitbit, you know, and us with slightly more sophisticated watches than you. I can't uh, afford enough. <laughs> but having all that data available to help someone make those decisions. Um, because what we don't do very well at the moment is we do collect a lot of that data and it's up to me to manage that. My GP at the moment actually can't cope with that. There's no, you know, intermediate or well, what do they do with that information, you know, because when you go in to see your GP, it's a moment in time. So people's blood pressure is often higher when you go and see your GP. Well, that's not the issue. Blood pressure is something that you need to be able to monitor over a long period of time to see whether there's anything going on. Yep. And I don't get that when he just takes my blood pressure when I walk in, but my watch is recording that all the time. So therefore, that is the information that you want then to be used, you know, on an ongoing basis. And we haven't quite cracked that. And we haven't yep. cracked it for a number of reasons. Number yep. one is um, most of the watches um, do have some monitoring, and it's just a wellness, so they actually don't yep. monitor it as accurate as we, we would like at this point of time. And the TGA, uh, at this point, has recognised that, and those yep. most of those wellness uh, apps are still not recognised by the TGA yep. because of their lack of accuracy at this stage. And therefore, with their lack of accuracy, we can't correctly diagnose and therefore can't correctly treat. So that's that's a real big problem as we move forward, that there's a lot of uh, consumers um, uh, believing that what they're seeing on their watch is actually accurate. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that accuracy is not quite there as yet. As we build that, it will get there. And with that accuracy, we can correctly diagnose and therefore treat from afar. Those, but, when, you know, a lot of those, we're looking at trends, aren't we, too? Sure. So, you know, and I think this is where it, it comes, you know, there's that bit of a crux of the matter that you want to know what's happening with it over time. So even if it's not entirely accurate, if, for instance, the blood pressure is getting worse, then you would be able to sort of detect that. But at the same time, that then comes under being a medical device that then needs to be regulated and goes through all these different tests to be certified, which you can guarantee that Apple don't want to do with the watch. It's a very, you know, intensive process. Which Maxim Scott has done and has got. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. We could say the same about COVID testing, right? Another bugbear of mine, Brad, is... Um, <laughs> is the cartel that is pathology in Australia where they're, they're, they're holding on and, and protecting their, uh, their income and, and, and fair enough. But, you know... Terry, you're being fearless. I'm being fearless. <laughs> um, we're going to lose our, all of our partners in the CRC. But, but, you know, it's only now that we're having a, co- a serious conversation about getting lateral flow and rapid, mm. rapid testing for COVID in Australia when they've been doing it in the UK and the US for a long time. And, it should not replace a PCR test at all, but it should be another line of defence. Yeah. Uh, you know, you take my mum lives in the northeast of England, and she's a little bit worried about going out. She's fully vaccinated, a little bit worried about going out to the shops. And she said, "I just take my rapid flow te- my rapid flow test um, every day." And she's got twenty odd of them in the corner, and she just wakes up in the morning and, and takes one every day, and you get the result within fifteen minutes. And it's not ninety nine percent accurate like a PCR test, but it's ninety two or ninety three percent accurate, and that's probably good enough to give us that indication of uh, I'm okay or not. And we've been so slow in Australia to adopt things like that, and it's only now through the outbreak in New South Wales that we're thinking actually these rapid tests are probably going to be quite useful. Okay. Um, just on telehealth, going back to that, I note the Women's and Children's Hospital opened a virtual ED uh, system this month, which is, you know, if you've got a problem at 3am and it's a long drive to the Women's and Children's and you're just not quite sure, could be um, interesting. Um, do, do you see that being part of the changing health landscape for, for ED yeah. presentations, which, uh-huh. which can... He's clogging, ramping and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. We, we worked with the Prince Alfred uh, through Sydney Local Health District in, in, uh, around RPE Virtual, mm. um, which I think is probably yeah. one of the initial virtual hospitals. Um, absolutely fantastic facility. And I think in the first six months there, they um, interacted with over 8,000 uh, patients, uh, many of whom who would have presented yeah. to the hospital if it wasn't for that virtual consultation a lot of that is around telehealth but a lot of it is around other services like remote monitoring even digital therapeutics right the ability to treat someone in their own home um, uh, is is really really interesting so yeah I, I think that everyone you know when I talk to all of the chief digital health officers around the country 
everyone says, you know, from a technology point of view, uh, virtual care and, and, and virtual hospitals is, is top of the list. Um, so I do see that it, it's a trend that's going to accelerate rapidly. For sure. All right. Uh, look, I'm getting the bit of a wind up now. So um, seeing we're on a uh, virtual audience, I'll thank the virtual audience for joining us. Um, thank Flinders for having this fearless conversation forum. It's been fascinating. I reckon there's a heck of a lot more I could ask all of you for quite some time to come, but I hope it's been very useful for everyone. So I'd just like to thank the panellists for sparing the time, a very high-caliber panel, which we've enjoyed. Um, plenty of great insights in there. Um, there'll be a story in tomorrow's advertiser further on this and a deep dive in the Sunday Mail this weekend, exploring some of the issues that have been raised today. So thanks, thanks to our panellists very much, and... Thanks to our audience for joining us. Goodbye.